0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning and uh, welcome. We're glad you're here today. If you'd please open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We are in a series right now called An Anchor. For the soul, one of the things we like to do here at Whitefield is we like to study through entire books of the Bible. We like to go through them verse by verse and chapter by chapter because that way we get the entire message, everything that God intended to speak to us through a given section. We get to hear it. We get to hear it in context. And so we've been studying through the letter to the Hebrews in this study we've called an Anchor for the Soul. And it's one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible, by the way, because it is all about fixing our eyes upon Jesus, seeing Him for how great He is. And then letting the implications of that flow into our lives and and affect and bring out transformation in every area of our lives. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is a superior savior. He is greater than anything else that we hope in, anything else that we look to, anything else that we trust in. And so this morning as we consider Jesus, Lord, would you help us to all the more put our trust in our hope in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you in your glory, in your greatness for all that you are. And Lord, that we might treasure you as we behold you. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, there are only a few times in the Bible where we read that God spoke in an audible voice, like a voice that people could hear. And one of those occasions, actually, that happened, that God spoke in an audible voice actually to interrupt somebody, to cut somebody off, somebody who was saying something that was so ridiculous, so crazy, that God said, you know what, I can't, I can't let this go on, I need to say something. And God actually spoke up to interrupt somebody and cut them off. That man's name was Peter. And Peter is the one who elicited God Almighty to break his silence and interrupt him because he was saying something that was so ridiculous that God said, no, I I need to say something here. So the story is told in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same story. It's one of the few stories that's told in all four of the Gospels. The story is known as the story of the transfiguration. We're going to read it here in Mark's Gospel, and you'll see how this ties into the text that we just read in Hebrews. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. We'll go through it one at a time. It says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So after six days. Well, six days after what? Well, six days after what precedes that very text. In the previous verses, you read that Jesus had just broken the news to his disciples about what was going to happen In a short time. He said, yes, I am indeed the Messiah, just like you suspected, just like you hoped that I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. But then he told them, but the way I'm going to save you is I'm going to die. Now, that was not at all what they were expecting to hear. I mean, they thought that Jesus had come to be president of the world, basically, right, and to change things and bring about change and make things better. And now Jesus is saying that he's going to die? What kind of savior does something like that? How can you save people if you die? They were wondering. Now, it would have made sense to them if they would have thought back to the prophecies that were made of old about the Messiah and who he would be in the scriptures. It would have made sense in that case, but they weren't thinking about that, you see. And so when Jesus explained to them that he hadn't actually come to be a political savior, he hadn't come to make Israel great again. No, he had come to do something much bigger than that. He was coming not to save their country, not to save their culture, not to save their economy. He was coming to save their souls. That was his mission. And he told them, in just a few days from now, he said, I'm going to let some of you see me for who I really am. He said, There are some of you standing here today who will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come in power. And then in the very next verse, we read, Six days later, he didn't wait very long. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, some of them, up onto a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, the text tells us. What that means is that they got to see a side of Jesus that they had never seen before. They got a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory, because here's the thing, Jesus is God. He is God come to us in human packaging. He didn't stop being God but for a time he was packaged in humanity so that being fully God and being fully man at the same time as he hung upon the cross with his one hand he could take the hand of God, with his other hand he could take the hand of man and he could bring us back into connection, back into relationship by paying the debt which separated us. And as he was wrapped in humanity and packaged in humanity for that time, his divinity, his divine glory, the radiance was veiled. It was hidden in that packaging. But on this one occasion, for just a moment, Jesus let these men, these disciples, get a glimpse. Of his divine glory. He let it shine through. And what did that look like? Well, it tells us in verse 3 of that section, it says that his clothes became radiant. Well, how radiant? It says intensely white. Well, like white as snow? No. Even more, it tells us as white as no uh, launderer on earth could ever get them. So that's pretty white. In verse 4, it says, and there appeared with him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with him. Elijah and Moses, who are these guys? What are they doing here? Now, Elijah and Moses are the two greatest figures in Jewish history. These guys are the heroes. They're the superstars of Judaism. These are the ones who, when the kids are growing up, they aspire to be like Elijah, be like Moses. You see, Elijah was called the greatest of all the prophets. And then you have Moses. Moses is, I mean, he's really the guy. He is the guy. He's the guy who led the people out of slavery in Egypt. He's the guy who saved their nation. He's the guy to whom God gave the Ten Commandments. He's the guy who led the Jewish nation through the wilderness and to the promised land. The term that the Jewish people used for the scriptures. We call them the Old Testament, but of course for them it wasn't old because they, it was you know, current, I guess. You could say the Testament. They didn't call it that, though. They called it the The law and the prophets, that's the way that they referred to it. We call it the Old Testament, they call it the law and the prophets, and so here we have Moses and Elijah, and they're really the figureheads of the law and the prophets. Moses being the figurehead of the law, Elijah being the figurehead of the prophets. And so here they are, from a biblical perspective, these are the two greatest figures in all of history. Imagine like for, for us right, as Americans be like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln or Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron, right? You got Moses and Elijah, and here's Jesus standing amongst them, talking to them. In Luke's gospel, it tells us what they were talking about. They were actually talking about the cross, about what Jesus was about to do in not many days from now. And in the middle of this epic scene, where here's Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking, and Jesus is radiant in glory, it says that Peter decides to say something because it tells us well, he didn't know what else to do, and he was a little bit, uh, he, was, he was kind of freaking out. He had that kind of foot and mouth disease, where you got to always pry your foot out of your mouth. Sometimes it's better, Peter, to just say nothing, right? But Peter's like, oh, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll say something. He says, it's good that we're here. You know, you know translation, this is awesome. It's good that you invited me for this. You know, one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 17, verse 28, which says, even a fool is thought to be wise when he keeps his mouth shut. And I I remember reading that as a young man and thinking, that's some pretty good advice, actually, right? But so Peter gets nervous, and what does he do? He just starts blurting something out. And he says, hey, Rabbi, Jesus, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. Let's build a memorial, you know? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's wanting to set up a monument. you got to understand this. Peter, at this moment, when he says this, here's what he's thinking. He's thinking, I'm going to go way out on a limb here. I'm going to say something scandalous, something something radical. Some people are going to say that I'm going too far, but I'm just going to go out and say it. Let's build a monument to Moses, Elijah, and jesus in other words we're going to declare that jesus is on the same level as moses and elijah and he's like hey guys don't don't get all crazy on me i i really believe this is true you know and jesus he's saying jesus we're we should just go on record and say jesus is in the same category as the greatest men in history moses and elijah now understand peter really thought that he was going out on a limb here and saying something radical Something that would have been scandalous, and, and probably it would have, that people would have been like, dang, Peter, I mean, that's bold, man. Are you sure? Are you serious? Are you sure you want to go that far and say something that serious about Jesus? Do you really have that high a view of who Jesus is? But then God interrupts Peter, right, breaks his silence and speaks in an audible voice and says, hang on here, this is my beloved son. And suddenly, around them we read that no longer did they see anyone except for Jesus only. God says, Peter, let let me stop you right there. I need to interrupt you before this goes any further. Listen here. This person, Jesus, he is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Moses and Elijah then suddenly just kind of disappear, and they see no one else except for Jesus only. You see, what God was telling Peter and us through this story, is this. You cannot put Jesus on the same level, on the same shelf, as other great historical figures. You can't just lump him in with other religious leaders who have lived throughout history. There is none who compares to him. He is the greatest. He is the highest. He is not on the same level with the law and the prophets. Rather, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The whole purpose of the law and the prophets was to prepare the way for him. And this moment was all about making this point that Jesus is not equal to the greatest people who have ever lived, but in fact, he is greater. He stands alone. He is in a category all by himself. Here's Moses and Elijah, and they're essentially passing the baton onto Jesus. They're essentially bowing the knee to Jesus, and then they fade away, and Jesus stands alone. And I'll tell you, that is what the book of Hebrews is all about as well. It's about making this point, helping us to see who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us. And as we consider Jesus, this is what we find. As we consider who he is, taking a deep dive into considering who is Jesus, here's what we find. He was not just another great person amongst many great people who have walked the earth at times throughout history. He is different. He stands alone this book, The Letter to the Hebrews, it was written kind of as an open letter like we do nowadays still on the internet. People will post open letters. That's kind of what this was. It was an open letter that was written generally to a group of people and it was distributed widely. And this letter was written to people who were weary. They were tired. They were, they were having a hard time because they were facing a lot of struggles. They were facing difficulties in their lives and they were kind of done, right? They're like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And they were thinking about giving up. Now, I wonder if any, any of you have ever felt that way yourself sometimes. Things are hard, and you just want to check out. You just want to give up. And maybe you've got struggles. You, you just want to take a break, right? You want to give up. And so the question is, what does a person need at a time like that? And the writer of the Hebrews tells us, what you need in those times, and actually in every time, what you need more than anything, the only thing that can truly help you is for you to look to Jesus, for you to fix your eyes upon him, for you to see him for all that he is and to understand all that he has done for you because in seeing that and in understanding that, it will change your perspective on everything. The specific group that this letter was written to were Christians who were from a Jewish background, Jewish heritage. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews, not Jewish people in general. These are Hebrew, ethnically Hebrew Christians. See, in the book of Acts, one of the things we read about there is we read about how the early Christianity started after Jesus had ascended into heaven. We read that many, many Jewish people, starting in Jerusalem and then spreading out from there, but many Jewish people were becoming Christians. And the reason was they were believing that jesus was the messiah you see for them christianity wasn't a new religion at the very heart of the jewish faith is the hope in the messiah the savior who god is going to send into the world and so for many jewish people at that time when they saw the evidence after Jesus' resurrection about jesus being the messiah they said yeah it adds up we believe And so then the problem was that as all these Jewish people were becoming Christians and following Jesus and and putting their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, something began to happen. And that was that the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities, started to be kind of concerned about this because you see, the Jewish religious authorities were the ones who had ordered Jesus to be put to death and that kind of discredits you as a religious figure if you kill the Messiah, right? And so here's all these people believing in the Messiah and then they're putting two and two together. But wait, you guys killed the messiah and you know they're adding it up and realize and the jewish religious leaders like i don't know if we can you know handle this we're going to lose all our power we'll lose all our influence we'll lose our position people are going to turn against us and so they kind of tried to flip the flip the table and say no no we are now going to persecute you guys right and so they began to persecute people who were believers in jesus and they would accuse them of blasphemy and the reason they accused them of blasphemy is because these christians were saying that Jesus was God, which is actually something that the Old Testament had always said, that when the Messiah comes, this is who he will be. He will be a man, but he will also be divine. He will be God. But see, they said, no, no, that's blasphemy to call this man God. And so they began to go into people's houses, pull them out of their houses, go and, you know, witch hunt for who's a Christian. And they would send them to death by stoning, which was the punishment for blasphemy. And so as these Christians began to be Persecuted. Thousands and thousands of Christians began to flee their homes. They became refugees. They went to other places where they weren't facing persecution. And ironically, Christianity spread because of that, because as these Christian refugees took the good news about Jesus wherever they went, Christianity began to spread there as well. But obviously, for many of these people, as this persecution began, being a Christian wasn't so much fun anymore. You see, being a Christian meant hardship, it meant difficulty, it meant suffering. And it just wasn't It wasn't fun. There was a lot of hard that came along with it. And so some of them, many of them, for the sake of their families or even just to spare themselves the hardship, they thought, you know what, Uh, they're kind of tempted to give up on this whole Christianity thing. Maybe they'll go back to Judaism. They were fine when they were Jews. Why not just go back to that, uh, you know, apart from Jesus? Others of them simply retreated into what you might call the mushy middle. The mushy middle where you really don't believe in anything or stand for anything. The mushy middle is when you don't want to do anything or say anything that might be unpopular in any way so you don't straight out reject Jesus but neither do you come out and say I'm a Christian and I follow him and he's my Lord and I live for him you just retreat into this mushy middle where you don't really stand for anything you don't put your stake down anywhere and say this is what I believe here I stand I can do no other Rather, you say, well, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't know about this or that, and you just don't take a stand on anything. You say, Oh, you know, well, I'm spiritual. Jesus said some good stuff and all, but you know, I don't want to go so far as to say that he's the only way, or you say, I'm agnostic. I don't know what I believe. In that society at that time, just like in our society today, there was a pressure to retreat into a mushy middle. But the writer to the Hebrews is writing to these people who are facing many of the same things that you and I also deal with in our world today. And he's saying, if you really consider who Jesus is, he's saying, hang on a second. Think about who Jesus is. Think about what he has done for you. And if you do that, then the last thing you will ever want to do is turn against him when things get hard, rather you do just the opposite. When things get hard, you will want to rush towards him. You will want to embrace him no matter what the cost. So what we need more than anything is to see him. To fix our eyes upon him. And here in chapter three, the writer now begins another section in which he's showing us that Jesus is greater than anyone and anything. That's what he does throughout this book. First he showed us Jesus is greater than any human being, greater than any angel, greater than anyone who has ever lived. Now he tells us Jesus is greater than Moses. Now maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I already kind of had that sorted out. I already, I'm kind of cool with that point, right? I don't really think you need to convince me this morning that Jesus is greater than Moses. But still, I want you to hang with me because here's the thing. It's not just Jesus' supremacy that we're going to be looking at, but it's what we learned through, about Jesus through this comparison that's really valuable. So as you'll see also, there are some very important principles in this section that apply to all of us. Moses was considered the savior of the Jewish people but here in this section, the writer is telling us that Jesus is a superior Savior who brought a superior salvation. That's the title of today's message, a superior Savior. And there are three things that I want you to see as we look through this text. Number one, we're going to talk about Moses' greatness. Secondly, we're going to talk about Moses' hope. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the search for salvation. So Moses' greatness, Moses' hope, and the search for salvation. Let's begin by looking at Moses' greatness. Before getting into the comparison between Jesus and Moses, the writer reminds us in the first verse of the identity that we have in Christ. First of all, he says, holy brothers. So two things right there. He says, in Christ, you are holy holy. That's number one. Now, it's really important to remember that our holiness in Christ doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we have a record of perfect behavior and we never do anything wrong. Rather, holiness in Christ is a status. It's a stamp that he puts on your document, right, that says it's something that he bestows upon you. It is a gift from God, this status. Because of what Jesus has done for you and taking the judgment for your sins, On the cross, because of that, God bestows on us. He puts a stamp on you and says, this is your status now before me. You are holy. To be holy means to be acceptable before God. Secondly, he says, brethren or brothers. In other words, in Christ, we are part of a family, part of the family of God. We'll talk about that more as we go on. And thirdly, he says, you who share in a heavenly calling. See, to be a Christian isn't only about what you get out of it. To be a Christian is also to be called by God to be part of his mission in the world, to bring love and light and hope to a hurting world. These people, remember, these people had not yet given up on Christianity. They were tempted to, but they hadn't given up yet. They're still right there on the fence, and the writer writes to them while they're still Christians, and he says, hey, I want you to remember, I want you to remember who you are in Christ. I want you to remember the benefits that you have in Christ, because here's the deal. Apart from Christ, these things no longer apply. You see, the implication of what he's saying is this, do not forget what you have received in Christ because really, are you going to give up these eternal blessings, these benefits because of some momentary hardships? You're gonna give up eternal hope because of some momentary hardships? Are you really going to give up all of this in order to appease some people who aren't even good people? You know, it's been said that this is what we do in our society. We spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need to impress people who we don't like, right? And, and you think about it, so much of our time and energy is spent thinking about people who, who we probably don't need to be worrying about pleasing anyway. And Much more importantly, we should be worried about pleasing God and doing what God would want us to do. And he goes on and he says, consider Jesus. By the way, that's exactly what we love to do here on Sunday mornings. Consider Jesus. We do it in song, we do it in study, and consider Jesus One of the most powerful things you can do, that's what this whole letter to the Hebrews is about, considering Jesus. But he says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now maybe some of you hear that and you think, wait a second, Jesus is an apostle? That's kind of weird, right? Because I thought Jesus had 12 apostles, but it seems like there's also like Paul was an apostle. But but wasn't it that like there's the apostles and there's Jesus? The apostles are apostles and Jesus is Jesus. So why is it saying that Jesus is an apostle? Let me explain, that Ancient Greek word for apostle is the word apostolos. In fact, the word apostle isn't even our word apostle. It's not even a translation of the word apostolos. It's actually just a transliteration. We've just anglicized the Greek word apostolos. So if you wanted to translate that word into English, what does that actually mean? It would actually be something more like ambassador. Or actually, I think the best way to translate it would be special agent, really, because that's what an apostle is. It's someone who is sent out On a mission to do a particular task, a special agent on a special mission. And so Jesus had 12 apostles because these were people who he sent out into the world on a mission. But Jesus, in that same sense, was an apostolos. He was a special agent who was sent by the Father into the world on a special mission to make a way for us to be saved. And so in that way, Jesus is not only an apostle, he's the greatest apostle who came on the greatest mission. But not only is he an apostle, but he is our high priest, See, the job of a priest was to be a go-between, between God and man. They would represent the will of God to the people and then they would go before God and they would represent, they would advocate for the needs of the people on behalf of, or in, on behalf of the people to God. And that is what Jesus does for us. It's what he has done for us. But here's what I want you to see. If you were a Jewish person and you read this, and you read this text, consider the apostle and the high priest of our confession when you heard that, consider the apostle of our confession, your mind would immediately go to Moses. Moses, consider the one who was sent, the special agent of our confession, your mind would immediately go to Moses. Moses was an agent sent by God on a mission to bring Israel out of bondage in Egypt to bring salvation to the nation and if you are a Jewish person in that same vein if you heard these words consider the high priest of our confession your mind would immediately go to Aaron the brother of Moses the very first high priest of the nation of Israel the prototypical high priest but the writer is saying this it's not Moses it's not Aaron that you need to put your focus on and and to make the sense of your adoration and and all these things he says You need to put your adoration, your focus on Jesus. He is the true apostle and high priest of our confession. The first thing the writer tells us is that what made Moses great was that Moses was faithful. In fact, in this text, he's actually quoting from Numbers chapter 12, in which we read something about Moses that tells us why Moses was great. Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 12. God says, Hear my word. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, or I speak to him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. And with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. In other words, Moses was in a class all by himself, whereas God spoke to others in riddles and dreams. And, and God spoke to them in these ways. God spoke to Moses directly, mouth to mouth and face to face. Understand that when it talks about Jesus being greater than Moses, this isn't a put-down of Moses in any way. Right? It's an elevation of Moses, saying, look how great Moses was, but then it's a super elevation of Jesus. You see, the thing that made Moses great was that he was faithful. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to his people. He was faithful to his calling. Now, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of fickleness in our culture. Faithfulness is, is rare. It's not the norm. And so if you are faithful, that's an incredibly powerful testimony. If you are faithful in your marriage, in your work, in a situation or a ministry that God has placed you in, that's an incredibly powerful testimony. it stands out you shine like a star in the night sky because faithfulness is so rare faithfulness is what made Moses great it's also what made Jesus great Jesus was faithful to his calling he was obedient even unto death death on a cross in fact the Bible tells us that Jesus is eternally faithful that even if we are faithless that he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself it's central to who he is he is faithful and he keeps his promises and therefore we can trust in him but both for Moses and for Jesus, what made them great was that they were faithful. They were faithful to God, faithful to their calling, faithful to their people. But here's what sets Jesus apart from Moses. We can read it in verses three through six. He says, Jesus was the son in the house. Moses was a servant. See, Moses was a servant in the household of God, maybe the greatest servant, but a servant nonetheless, but Jesus, he is the son in the house. Moses was a member of the house, but Jesus built the house, right? Jesus rules over the house. It's Jesus' house that Moses belongs to. Look at verse three again. It says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So check out what he's saying. He's saying Moses, comparing Moses to the house and Jesus to the builder of the house. In other words, Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus built Moses. He created him, he made him. And then in verse four, he says, every house has a builder. Every house is built by someone and the builder of all things is God. Do you get what he's saying here? He's saying Jesus is the builder and God is the builder of all things. Therefore, not only did Jesus create Moses, but Jesus is God. You see, Moses was a great man, but he was only a man. And that's so important. As the saying goes, even the best of men are but men at best. And that's true of Moses as well. If you look at the life of Moses, it's no secret that Moses... Had a lot of shortcomings. He was far from perfect. Read in the book of Exodus. Moses had failings as a father. He had failings as a husband. Moses had a tendency to lose his temper at bad times. He had a tendency to not always obey God perfectly. And the fact is, with any person that you look to, any human being that you look up to, even the best of men are but men at best, and they will disappoint you. They will let you down. They will fall short. And that's why all the more we need to look to Jesus. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him because people will eventually fall short, even the best of them, but Jesus never fails. Moses was a great savior, but Jesus is a superior savior who brought a superior salvation. Moses provided salvation from slavery, salvation from political and religious and cultural oppression, but Jesus came to give us salvation from sin and death. Jesus asked the ultimate question, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? What he's saying is what you need more than anything is not a political, economic, cultural solution. What you need more than anything is the salvation of your soul. Moses, the writer tells us, was bestowed by God with glory and honor. God did something for Moses that was really special. He let Moses have a glimpse of his glory. Remember, maybe you remember the story. We, we read it earlier this year when we studied through Exodus. But any more than a glimpse of God's glory and Moses' face would have melted off like Indiana Jones style. But God says, I'll let you have a glimpse. That's more than he ever gave anybody else. He put him in this spot where he wouldn't be destroyed. He'd be able to see the tail end of God's glory and God gave him a glimpse. It was an incredible honor. It was an incredible privilege. It was More than God, more than God did for anybody else. Moses got a glimpse Of God's glory but as we read earlier in the transfiguration we see that Jesus doesn't get a glimpse of God's glory rather he radiates his own divine glory and here's the point of that story the transfiguration and what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us right here And that's this, Jesus is not just one more great person among a long line of great people who have walked the earth throughout history. Jesus cannot be lumped together with Buddha or Muhammad or the Dalai Lama or anyone or anything else in some kind of mushy amalgamation that neither recognizes what those things teach or what Christianity teaches. No, Jesus stands alone. He is a superior savior. He brings a superior salvation. Now let's look at Moses' hope. Next, secondly, Moses' hope. Even though Moses was a great leader and a great savior of the people, Moses himself looked forward to something greater. He looked forward to another leader. He looked forward to a superior, a greater savior. Near the end of Moses' life, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a speech that Moses gave at the end of his life. There in Deuteronomy, it tells us that Moses made the people a promise. As he's 120 years old, he's about to walk off you know, into the sunset. He says, one day, God is going to send you somebody else. And that person will be like me, but he will be greater than me. Here's where it is in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, and it is to him that you shall listen. And then a few verses later, God chimes in too and just kind of backs Moses up, and he says, yes, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. You see, the Jewish people understood that promise and they held on to that promise. For a really long time, hundreds and hundreds of years. They were looking forward to that day when God would send that one. They called that person the Messiah. And so we read in John chapter 6, as Jesus had come and Jesus was teaching and Jesus was doing miracles. After Jesus did one particular miracle, we read that the people saw the sign that he had done. And they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. See, those people, they're referring back to Deuteronomy 18, that promise of Moses of the prophet who is like him but is greater than him who will come into the world. And it says this, that perceiving that they were about to come and try to force him to be king, Jesus withdrew away from them to a mountain by himself. Moses himself looked for something greater than himself. Moses himself looked for a greater salvation than the salvation that he brought the people. Moses himself looked for something more. In Hebrews chapter 11, we'll get there later, but I'll just tell you right now what it says. It says that everything that Moses did in his life, he did in faith, hoping and looking for true salvation. He was looking for true salvation. It says that he was looking for a true homeland, a heavenly country. He was looking for salvation from the ultimate oppression, the oppression of sin and death. Moses' hope was in the one who was to come, the one who would be greater than himself. After Jesus resurrected we read that he went and he was spent some time with his disciples. And you know, you can imagine Jesus' disciples, their minds must have been racing, their heads were spinning, because what is all that's happened over the last couple days? I and mean, we watched Jesus die, we saw him be buried, now he's alive again, what, what's going on? And it says that Jesus spoke with them, and it tells us this in Luke chapter 24, that Jesus hung out with his disciples, and we read this incredible thing. It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. This must have been the best Bible study that was ever taught. As Jesus explains to his disciples, beginning with the law, in the books of Moses, and then going through the prophets, how all of it spoke of him and pointed to him, and he had just fulfilled it by what he had done on the cross. You see, what that means for me and you is this, by the way. We will never really understand the Old Testament. It will never make sense to us, really, unless we understand that all of it is pointing us to and funneling us towards Jesus. And so for these people who were considering giving up on Christianity, the message that the writer gives them here is this, wait a second, Jesus is the person who Moses was looking forward to and hoping in and waiting for. Jesus is a superior savior. Moses was a great man, but Moses himself looked to Jesus and hoped in Jesus and, and predicted Jesus. You see, Moses himself hoped not just in a cultural or an economic or a political salvation, but a salvation from the curse of sin and death, salvation for our souls. And that brings us to our our closing point, and that's this, the search for salvation. See, here's the thing, everyone in the world is looking for salvation. All of us are looking for salvation. The real question is not, are you looking for salvation? It is, what are you looking to for salvation? What are you looking to to save you? The people this letter was written to, they they were facing a lot of hardship. They were facing difficulty and persecution, and they desired liberation. They desired salvation. And they thought the way to get that salvation was by taking a step back. From Jesus taking a step back away from Christianity or for example the people who so badly wanted Jesus to be their king they were looking for salvation they wanted Jesus to come and save their nation from the oppression of the Romans to give them political and economic and cultural salvation just like Moses had done when he stood up to Pharaoh in the most mighty nation in the world and he led the people out of captivity but here's the thing each and every one of us Every single person in this world, whether they realize it or not, we long for salvation because there's something deep within us that we know that this world is not the way that it should be. In fact, even when we look at ourselves, we look at ourselves and we can tell that there's something that is amiss even with us, even within us. We are not who we know we should be. The Bible puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. It says that all of creation is groaning, longing for redemption. We are longing that things would be right, that things would be the way that they should be, the way we know deep down inside that they ought to be. The philosopher Blaise Pascal, he was a Christian, and he put it this way. He said, there's something nostalgic within us. There's something reminiscent in us that desires to go back to the place from whence we came. And the reason is because we were made for perfection, and we have a lingering memory of it. And that's why we desire to return to that place where everything is the way that God says it should be. Everyone in this world is looking for salvation. There are a lot of different ways that people look for it. There are a lot of different things that people look to and hope in for salvation. Some people look to, for example, romantic relationships because what they desire is to be loved and to be cherished. Other people look to politics because they long for a world in which things are right, in which there is peace and justice. Other people look for it in things that make them feel safe and secure. Other people look for salvation even in things like substances, people who, who abuse substances. Why are they doing that? They're looking for an escape from reality, from this harsh reality. They're looking to feel good for a little bit in a world that makes them feel bad so often. And so ultimately, though, we need to see that ultimately all of these things are part of that salvation and that redemption that we long for. And like with Jesus, when people kept coming to him, asking him to be their king and to liberate them from the Romans, and Jesus kept telling them, no, that's too small. What you're asking for is good, but it's not enough. It's not, not that you want the wrong thing. It's that what you want is too small. I came to give you something much bigger. You're asking for political salvation. I came to give you a greater salvation. I came to give you salvation in all of the things that you long for so that all of these things will ultimately be fulfilled. And if you put your hope and your confidence in me, Jesus would say, and what I've done for you, not only will you be forgiven, not not only will you be made right with God, but you will have love and joy an end to pain and suffering eventually and you will have peace and justice. You will have a comprehensive salvation. See, Jesus is a greater savior who brings a superior salvation, the salvation that you need, the salvation that all of us long for deep down inside whether we realize it or not. Here's the thing. The question is this, how do we know that we can have this salvation? You see, every religion in the world is about what you need to do in order to get to God, in order to save yourself, but the message of the gospel is different. This is what sets Jesus apart. The message of the gospel is that God has come to you to be your savior because he loves you. He took the judgment for your sin so that you could receive salvation. And the question is, how do we know that we have that salvation? What do we need to do in order to have that salvation? We're told there at the end of verse 6 here in this section that what we need to do is to join the household of God and trust and hope in Jesus and hold fast to Him. This is a word that we've read over and over in this section. It's this idea of a house, the household, the house. See, the picture of a house is interesting because a house is exclusionary by nature. Any house that you drive by, any house in in this city it's exclusionary by nature there are people who are inside the house and there are people who are outside the house you see maybe there are some of you here today and you're like i don't know i don't actually know where i stand i don't know for sure that i'm inside the house or outside the house i want you to look again at the last verse of this section because it tells us that the way to become a christian and the way to remain a christian are by putting your trust and your hope in jesus and what he's done for you and by holding fast to him and i want to tell you the good news As you are holding fast to him, he is also holding fast to you and he's not gonna let you go. So I encourage you today, come into his house, put your trust in him, put your hope in him and hold fast to him today. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus our superior Savior, the one who has brought us the salvation, not only that we need, but the salvation that we long for in our heart of hearts, the salvation, Lord, that you came to provide. Lord, may we not be satisfied with anything less. Lord, may, may we not look to anything else to be our Savior and to be our hope, but may we hold fast to you, Jesus. May we enter your house by putting our trust, our confidence, our hope in you, and holding fast to you, and thank you, Lord, that you hold fast to us, and we pray that in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.